Thank you, Brother Dave, praying for us. Doug Nordquist, thank you for leading us, you and your team. What a joy it is to see our God at work in different lives over the years. I was reminded of that when I saw Doug's little sister back there and thought, oh my goodness, I haven't seen her and another dear friend in so many years and just reminded of God is at work in our lives over the course of years and it's a beautiful thing. Well, as Pastor Lou said, Jesus is King, amen? And sometimes that does come from unlikely sources. No one expected Kanye to say that, and we'll see, as Lou said, how long that endures. We pray it endures unto eternity, but it is a great picture, a reminder that every knee one day will bow, every tongue will confess that declaration that Jesus is King without fail. If you are here this morning and you've come and you never know Jesus is your King, we're just say welcome. We are so glad that you are here. And we are here singing the song, Lord, take our heart and let it be your royal throne because you're king and we're excited about that. You're king of our lives and we are glad about that because we need a king whether or not we know it. And Lou mentioned that word that begins and ends Philemon, the word grace. Children, do you know what grace stands for? Some moms and dads have been teaching children the little acronym of what grace stands for, God's riches at Christ's expense. The God of the universe pours out, lavishes his kindness and blessing and promises to us at the cost of King Jesus, and it is beautiful. Amen? Amen. Well, this morning, we want to dig back into Philemon And the title of the message this morning is Christian Speech in an Age of Fire. Christian Speech in an Age of Fire, because certainly around us there is a fire of speech and kinds of speech raging around us. And we want to see what our King has for us today about how we are to use our words and our tongue. So please open the Word of God to Philemon with me. Philemon is the last letter of Paul, so you'll find it right before the book of Hebrews. Invite you to open uh, either the Bible you brought or a Bible in front of you to the book of Philemon. And our text this morning is the first seven verses of that book. So let me invite you to please stand with me for the reading of the inspired, authoritative Word of God. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Aphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy 
and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. May God bless the reading of his word. You can have a seat. When we listen to the speech around us, whether it's at work or in family gatherings, on the radio or the television commentators, we are gripped right now, and this is not the only time in history it's been true, but it certainly is true now. Speech around us is emotional. It is often angry. It is frequently outraged. And you've said we live in an outrage culture. But it's also biting and scathing and often contemptuous of those who are of a different opinion or perspective. And then there is the mocking and the sneering and the cutting words spoken back and forth and around us in the air, these words bouncing around like fiery arrows fired from one to the next. And as those who live in this world, these tendencies can be seen among those who take the name of Christ in his church, in our homes, in our online discussions or our communications. Like the great fires that keep springing up in California, they try to find the single source. So James warned against the great evil that comes like a fire from our little tongues. And some of you know very personally what it's like to be on the receiving end of this fire, the pain that words have brought to you, maybe even very recently. And for many of us, we recognize that more often, more often than we would like, our words have contained the heat of fire. And so we come to this last letter of Paul's, this little book of Philemon, and it is here that we see a very different alternative. Not the language of power to be wielded. No, instead the language of loved, marked by weakness that flows from what we called last week a kingdom operating system which marks this letter. There's a countercultural way of speaking and thinking in this letter and it runs against the grain of how the man and woman, unaffected by God, would operate. So we asked the question last week, as, as Paul is writing, it's this very unique request he's building up to. We asked last week, is he using manipulation? For to a mind untouched by the work of God, that's what it can appear to be. And yet the answer is clearly no. Instead, our Father is giving us a master class in this kingdom operating system at work. He's giving us a powerful example of how this looks. So we want to consider this morning the marks of this way of relating and speaking that are here in this book that stand in marked contrast 
to the world's operating system that lives around us. I was with a friend this week who is in a significant role of ministry leadership, and he said that the number one question that pastors, he works with pastors, the number one question that pastors all over the country are sending his organization is how do we help our people to think about politics and to talk about politics? Think about this reality of speech and how we speak and how we talk about an issue like politics is the question that people are asking, pastors are asking all and all and all. So we know that this is pressing. We know it will be more so. Yet for us, how we speak personally, how we disagree, how we argue, how we discuss are of vital concern. So we want to consider in our short little passage six marks, six things that marked Paul's communication that are instructive for us. Before we dig into the text, we have to remind ourselves once more of the scene, of the the context of this letter. For remember, in this letter, we have one side of the story. There are some things we do know, some things we do not know. We addressed that a little bit last week, but there are different pieces we're trying to understand here. We're trying to piece together a story from a letter without a lot of further context. We have 25 verses. We don't have a lot of other supporting documents. So it's important to sort out what do we know, what do we don't know. Well, we know that Onesimus, we said that Paul is writing to Philemon about Onesimus. Right? Those are the three main characters. We mentioned some of the other characters last week, but Onesimus is referred to as a doulos. Some translate this word as bondservant. Others translate the word as slave. There are multiple words for servant, so some really favor the word slave, but in any case, Onesimus is in this position of bondservant or slave. Philemon was in the position of being uh, a master of sorts. So already, as we said last week, it raises Uh, for our uh, modern ears, a concern. What is going on here? We know as well that there has been a parting of Onesimus from Philemon. We don't know exactly how or why, but we also know that Paul knew them both. He was something of a spiritual father to Philemon, and now Onesimus has become very precious to him, and he counts him as a spiritual son as well. So Paul, the writer, had had spiritual influence on both of these individuals more recently on Onesimus. Now you'll read many commentators that say it's clear that Onesimus was a runaway slave who had stolen from Philemon. Others say, no, that's not clear. That's an inference. And when, again, we are trying to piece together information from a letter, we have to say, what are we clear on? What are we not clear on? It's not clear that that's the case. Others have argued that that Philemon had, in fact, sent Onesimus to Paul in prison to be a blessing to him, to be an advocate for him, to help him, to serve him. We don't know exactly the situation of what has arisen. We simply know that Onesimus was parted from Philemon, and Paul is writing to Philemon with a concern, with an idea, with a suggestion. So we don't know exactly what's going on. What we do know is that this is a very helpful letter that culminates in verse 18, which we will come to in the weeks to come, when Paul says, if Onesimus has wronged you at all or owes you anything, so again, we don't know what this debt is, 
perhaps by his absence, perhaps by theft, perhaps there wasn't really a debt, and Paul was just asking the question. Paul says, charge that to my account. What is clear, what we do know, is Paul is making a significant request to Philemon. And he is building his argument carefully. He is building uh, his communication carefully. For he has said, as we will read later, I am going to ask something of you and I don't want you to do it under compulsion. He says, though I could command from my spiritual authority, I prefer to appeal to you. So it's not a command. It's not manipulation. It is a spiritual appeal. It is, in fact, as we said last week, Christ-like leadership, the kind that every parent, every shepherd needs to grow in. One writer says it this way, Paul provides a framework within which Philemon is encouraged to be obedient to the authority of this apostle. The two pillars of this framework, faith and love, are introduced in 4 through 7. And these pillars are grounded in Christ, verse 6, who is the basis of the partnership between Paul and Philemon. So Paul is building an argument where he's going to make this request, this appeal to Philemon. One more note, and then we dig into our six marks. From the beginning of this church, this church called Jubilee Community Church, we have said over and over again, we want to be really clear that our authority comes from this book. We want to be a people who is under this book. And that goes for every person in the nursery, as well as every pastor, every elder. None of us declare ourselves above it. We all serve under it. And when correction is needed to be done, it's done with this book. So sometimes uh, people respond with a thought and say, hey, consider this, consider this, consider this. This week I received a note saying that I had said more last week about the, the, the shape of the disagreement of Paul and Barnabas than what Scripture said. It was noted that I drew the inference that Barnabas was correct and Paul was not. The person said, the Bible does not tell us this. It only tells us that they had a sharp disagreement. And I would say to you, that is a helpful word of correction. I think that's right. I think that's right. Our words matter and our teaching matters. And for those who teach and preach, we understand this. We feel particularly needy of God's help and your prayers for us, knowing we don't get it all right all the time. Though we aim to be correct as we stand under the word. I think the thought is exactly right, that Paul and Barnabas had a sharp disagreement about John Mark and the nature of whether he should return, but I skewed it as to say Barnabas was right, Paul was, was not, and I don't think the word is clear on that. And so again, helpful word. Each of us, including your pastors, those who preach, is in the process of growing in truth. And so Jesus prays for us sanctify them in truth. Your word is truth. So pray for us every week as we preach. Every sermon is a battle prepared in weakness and in need of God's great assistance. Okay, to our text and these six marks of Paul's communication that are so instructive for us. Mark number one. Paul communicates something about identity. 
identity. And this is a mark of Paul everywhere where he writes. God is so kind to give us so many writings of Paul where he stresses so much, and so do the other epistles, so much about our identity. And so look, right at the beginning in verse 1, Paul begins, it says, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus. Speaking of himself, his own identity. And the identity that he chooses is not one of power, not one of of grandeur, of, of lofty place, but a prisoner but a prisoner for Jesus Christ because Jesus is king. He's king. And so if I'm in prison, that's okay. He's king and he's worthy of my life. He's worthy of my freedom. He's worthy of my imprisonment. Imprisonment, he is king. And Paul is constantly resetting our minds on who we are and what is true. Timothy, our brother, to Philemon, Period? No. He wants to say something about the identity of this one to whom he's writing. And so he says, I'm writing to you, Philemon, are, what's the next word? Look at your text and read it with me. To Philemon are, three words. Everybody together. To Philemon are, our partner in ministry, but not just our partner in ministry, our beloved fellow worker, our beloved partner. So he's beginning this letter where he's going to ask something hard with a note of love and a note about identity. He begins with their fellowship. This one to whom he is writing, he's a beloved fellow worker. And I don't know about you, but for me, identity is so often something I take so for granted. I so assume it in my speaking to one another. And yet in a war for right thinking, speech that flows from the gospel and is constantly working to remind and recall identity is so important. So important. It's so easy for us to become short in our communication. Right? We, we can't spell the word R to just write the letter R. Can't spell the word U. We just use the letter U, right? And all my young people who use that in their text. It's okay. It's efficient. It's good. That's not the point. The point is, when we're communicating with one another, we can become so efficient that we forget about identity. And that's not a young person thing. That's an everybody thing. And this is the issue. Here is the problem. When a parent speaks with their children and young people, this can be true. It's the first mark of gospel speech is that it is marked by identity, which again we see in every epistle. Paul works so hard on identity. Mark number two, we see in verse two, is it is marked by relationship. He's already talked about relationship of Philemon as a beloved fellow worker, but now he's, though he's writing to Philemon, he's not leaving out those in his household. So he mentions Aphia, our sister, who he said may be Philemon's wife, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house, Archippus, we said, maybe his son, we don't know for sure. But as Paul is writing, he's not just efficient, not just writing to who he's writing to, but he's mentioning those he knows, those he has a relationship with. As he ends the letter, he doesn't just sign it himself, but he includes those who he is with. Paphras sends you greetings, so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow workers. He's operating out of relationship. 
So he's speaking about identity, but he's including multiple people in this. He's speaking in this context of relationship. And Paul's life and ministry are marked by relationships. He cares for people. Even as he writes to Philemon, he's not ignoring everyone else. And it is easy, again, for us to become so busy that our communication lacks relationship. We don't have time for relationship. And yet, Jubilee, our church is a web of relationships. As we communicate, this is something very instructive for us. It is not just that we get to the point, but rather that we remember these relationships are important and we need God's help because we all don't do it right all the time. But we just say, God, help us. Help us that we would value relationships. We would see people. We would notice people. We would greet those who are with you and include those who are with me. So easy to take these things for granted. So easy to read these first verses and just ignore them as though there's nothing here. And yet, they are instructive for us. Paul's speech is marked as that which takes notice of identity and relationships. Also, third, his speech is Godward. Everywhere he writes, his speech is Godward. But when he's speaking here to an individual, notice that he is speaking with God in view. And, and again, this is everywhere in Paul's letters. I was just talking with our, our former elder, good friend, Jahil. He's just beginning to preach in Ephesians. And we we're talking about, oh my goodness, every verse at the beginning of Ephesians is so Godward. Everything is about our relationship in Christ, in Christ, in Christ. And so it is here. He can't begin a letter without speaking of God and the goodness of God and the grace of God. So verse 3, he says, grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, do a little self-test with this. It's easy to say, okay, yeah, that's the way Bible talk, talks, right? But think about this, verse, verse 3, marking our communication. When you send a letter, would you feel comfortable at the beginning of your letter saying, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. That feels strange. Like, uh... Well, we don't want to just start being weird, right? But we should pause and say, why is that weird? Why does that feel strange for me to communicate in that way? Why does it feel strange to bring God into my conversation? See, as Americans, we have been well-trained that we don't bring God into polite conversation. And yet we must push against this and say, Jesus is our King, God is our Father, and He is to be central in our communication. And so we have modeled here this new kingdom operating system, this new way of speaking where God is in the middle and God is marking how we speak to one another. So this would be something I'd love for you to discuss at lunch, maybe after the popcorn time or time helping Nick move some things. Why is this so constant for Paul, this Godward speech, and why is it so strange for us? So constant for Paul, so strange for us. 
So his speech takes note of identity. It values relationship. It is Godward. And fourth, his speech overflows with being prayerful. Prayerful. Look at verse 4. I thank my God always when I remember you, Philemon, in my prayers. Some have estimated that Paul walked more than 10,000 miles. Spent a lot of time walking. Think about walking 100 miles. Think about walking 500 miles. Like beyond Chicago. Think about doing that multiple times. It's a lot of time walking. And clearly, one of the things Paul did while he walked and talked was he prayed. He prayed. He prayed for this web of relationships that are all over the New Testament. And again, our, our ears can hear verse 4. As Paul says this and say, oh, of course, of course, of course, of course. Obviously, obviously he prayed for him. This is not obvious. This is not obvious. Have you ever received a note from someone and it begins with them telling you, I've been praying for you. I've been giving thanks to God for you. Can I tell you that this is powerful when, when we write this way to one another. So it can seem obvious, but it changes the dynamic of our communication when we are praying for one another and we, when we tell one another we are praying for them. It is powerful. What a communication of love that someone is praying for us and they communicate that way to us. Praying the way Paul prayed. Not just bless them, but open their eyes to see you more. Help them to know the power that you have for them. Fill them with faith. Grant them to understand your love more. Jubilee, when we communicate with one another, what a thing that it would be marked with this odd thing in the eyes of those who are around us. This thing of prayerfulness. Prayerfulness. Flip over with me to Ephesians 1. Keep your finger here in Philemon and just see this. This, this happens all over the, the place. Think, what, what has Paul prayed when Paul's got done talking about all this of identity, all this Godwardness and all the blessings that are ours in Christ 1 through 14? Then he says in verse 15, for this reason. Sounds like Philemon, because I've heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love toward all the saints, the exact same thing we're going to hear in the next verse, I do not cease to give thanks for you. Ephesian church, I just keep praying for you, remembering you in my prayers that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you a spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. I want you to know Him. Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened that you would know the hope that what he's called you to. What are the riches of his glorious inheritance in the saints? And what is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him up from the dead. Keeps going, but 
What a prayer. Paul is praying this for the Ephesians, that they would know the power of God. And oh, Jubilee, how we must pray this way for one another. God, help us. We are weak, so prone to prayerlessness. God, we need you. Help us in this way. So here is Paul, writing to Philemon, speaking of identity, speaking of relationship, speaking in a God-word way, speaking with words that are prayerful. Then the fifth mark here is he speaks evidences of God's grace at work. So he committed grace to you, but now he's going to explain something of the grace at work that he is, has seen in Philemon's life. Now again, the context becomes so important. He's about to ask Philemon something hard, and yet right now he is speaking of God's grace at work in Philemon's life. It is easy for us to not notice how God is at work in our lives. And it is so helpful when someone else comes to us and sees the work of God in our life. Think about our brother Doug leading worship. My goodness, I just had a front row seat of seeing the work of God in his life. And I look around this church and it is one of the highest privileges I have to just look at you and see the grace of God at work in your lives so powerfully. Brother Dave Umdahl, my goodness, the grace of God all over this guy's life. He used to be my tenant when I was a landlord and we were killing mice and cockroaches together and God's just taking him on this journey of hard things and finding a good place to live after that (laughs) place and so many different things, but just God's grace. Here Paul is speaking in this way. Speaks of God at work in his life, not only who God is, but who Philemon is because of God's working. Verse 5, because I hear of your love. And here we have a little chiastic thing, which which just is kind of a poetic form, but the beginning of the verse and the end of the verse go together, and then the middle go together. So when we we just have it here, it's a little bit hard to understand what he's saying. But if you just take the... dial in here on verse 5 and look at the two words and and just know that the beginning before the first and and the ending after the second and go together okay so I'll I'll read it that way because uh, I hear of your love for all the saints and of the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus then he goes on but he's noticing Man, brother, I am encouraged. I hear of your love for all the saints, the faith that you have toward the Lord Jesus. This is the grace of God at work, and he's going to come back to this. He's going to refer to this. This is going to be the ground for which he makes his request to him. But he sees his faith at work. He sees his love in action. Humanly speaking, this can sound like flattery. It is not. It is gospel encouragement. This is kingdom encouragement. This is what we do for one another. Brothers, sisters, let us be lavish in speaking about the grace of God we see at work in one another's life. I, we need to grow in this. Not flattering, encouraging, honoring, giving glory to God for his work in one another's life. He's seen his love. 
He's going to ask him to exercise some more. He's seen his faith. He's going to ask him to trust more. And oh, that this would mark our fellowship. It is so important. Faith and love. And love being the essential component that binds us together. Relationships joined by faith in Jesus, marked by love. But in this moment, in this day in our society, biblically defining love, understanding the nature of love is so important. Because love comes down from faith in King Jesus, right? To to understand love for one another correctly, we have to understand that it is a love that flows from faith in Jesus being king. This is why when someone says Jesus is king, it's a big deal. It's a declaration of authority. So when we think about love, we've got to know that we, he, he's commending his love for one another, but it's a love that is rooted in faith in Jesus. So keep your finger in Philemon and, and go with me to one other place, the book of Philippians, the first chapter, and see how Paul prays for the Philippians this way. He, he prays for their love to increase. So Paul is commending Philemon for the grace of God at work in his life, his faith, and his love. And and we want to pray for one another that our love would grow, but it's not just a a love according to how anybody defines it. It's a certain kind of love. It's a gospel love. It's a biblical love. And so one of the great places we see that is in the first chapter of Philippians. There's a great passage to meditate on, to consider. Philippians 1, 9 through 11. Good one to think about this week. What is the nature of love? Here's Paul praying for the Philippians. He says, it is my prayer that your love would abound more and more. I want your love to grow more and more with knowledge and all discernment. Love abounding more and more in knowledge and discernment. Knowledge is speaking of truth. Discernment is speaking of what's true and what's not true. So which one do we want? Do we want truth? Do we want to be able to tell right from wrong? Or do we want love? Everybody that thinks one, go to this side of the room. Everybody thinks the other, go to this side of the room, right? No. Want your love to abound more and more with knowledge and discernment, right? As he's seeing Philemon's love, as he's going to call him to an act of love, he is calling him and he's praying for the Philippians and he would pray for us that our love jubilee would abound more and more in knowledge and all discernment. Paul continues in Philemon, so that you may approve what is excellent and be pure and blameless for the day of Jesus Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the praise and glory of God. We need to know what's excellent. We need to know what's good. We need to know how to make decisions. How do we get that? We get that by our, when our love grows according to knowledge and discernment. Well, you say, is there any practical application for that? Would that ever come up in real life? Well, it comes up every single week. Every single week. This week, there was a big hubbub in Christian circles about one pastor speaking of Beth Moore. Beth Moore has been talked about a lot, if you don't know her. She is a gifted woman who has spoke, taught, preached about Jesus a lot. I have lots of thoughts about Beth Moore. We've not talked about her. We can talk about that at the popcorn time if you want, first, first in line. 
However, the reason I bring it up is what was said about her, hard to say it was said in love. So sometimes we, we speak truth, and it, it's important to say something that's true, but how we say the thing is important as well. It's not necessarily that, okay, truth is more important or love is more important. We, we don't have a ranking, but these things go together. So they did in the book of Philemon. So they did as Paul praised this way. The options are not to be rude or to throw out biblical convictions, but that our love would abound more and more in knowledge and discernment, that we would speak the truth with love, with grace, as we are seeing in our text. So important. Think about historically the way women were spoke, spoke, speak, spoken, the women, the way words were used about women in Jesus' era, right? Oftentimes very belittling, demeaning. Dorothy Sayers, of all people, says this. Women had never known a man like this man. There never has been such another. A prophet and teacher who never nagged at them, never flattered or coaxed or patronized, never made jokes about them, never treated them either as the women, God help us, or the ladies, God bless them, who rebuked without querulousness and praised without condescension, who took questions and arguments seriously, who never mapped out their sphere for them, never urged them to be feminine or jeered at them for being female, who had no axe to grind and no uneasy male dignity to defend, who took them as he found them and was completely unselfconscious. There's no act, no sermon, no parable in the whole gospel that borrows its pungency from female perversity. Nobody could possibly guess from the words and deeds of Jesus that there was anything funny about women's nature. She's speaking in a different time. We don't feel quite the pressingness of what she was speaking of. But our Lord Jesus is the model example of truth abounding more and more according to knowledge and discernment. And so it was for Jesus. And so Paul is calling us to grow in this way. Speech that takes note of identity, that values relationship, that is Godward, that is prayerful, that sees the evidences of grace in people's lives and abounds in love according to knowledge and discernment. And last, that speaks with encouragement. That speaks with encouragement. Before we dig in and see encouragement, let me just ask you one application question. Consider that either the last birthday that you were a part of or the next birthday that you are going to be a part of thinking about this because we've got a birthday coming in our family. Is the speech that transpires at this birthday, either past or present, is it marked this way? Birthdays can be really a wonderful opportunity for speaking about identity, for valuing relationships, for speaking in a way that's Godward and prayerful and commending evidences of grace. And this last one we're about to see, encouragement. And it's very easy just to sing a song, cut cake, open a present, and be done, right? So we're asking God, help us to live according to this kingdom operating system, this new way. And we see in our last two verses, 
Paul's encouragement. Paul's encouragement, and his encouragement is everywhere. And it, again, it's notable that this encouragement is coming before a request, but he encourages Philemon. He says, I pray that the sharing of your faith, or another translation says, the faith you share with us may become effective for the full knowledge. Another translation says, may deepen your understanding of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. Verse 6 is a little hard to get our heads around the way it's rendered in the ESV. So let me read it in another translation just so that we get the sense of it. It says, I pray that the faith you share with us may deepen your understanding of every blessing that belongs to you in Christ. Then he continues, verse 7, for I have derived much joy and much comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. So here's this powerful word of encouragement. Even as he's praying that his faith would deepen, he'd understand every blessing that belongs to us in Christ. He says, I have derived much joy, much comfort from your love, my brother. Saints have been refreshed through you. He's going to ask him, refresh my heart again in verse 20. But here, it's encouragement. Encouragement is defined as the action of giving someone support, confidence, or hope. And friends, we know this, but each one of us is in a battle. Each one of us is tempted to think about quitting something. Whether it's following Jesus, or a relationship, or evangelizing, or something. We're in a battle, and we need encouragement. We need to give this gospel encouragement. Giving support, giving confidence, giving hope, believing for one another, even as we ourselves believe. And it's on this ground of encouragement that Paul will move forward with his request. He's making this request with great care. His letter is written thoughtfully, and he is modeling for us a kingdom-operating system. Communication marked by the importance of identity, the importance of relationship. Communication that is Godward. Communication that is prayerful. Communication that expresses, give thanks for the evidences of grace in one another's life. And communication that is filled with encouragement. And this is the ground with which Paul will turn slavery on its head. We're not going to get there this week. That's coming. But all of this ground is the foundation for Paul, how Paul is going to work subversively to turn slavery on its head. Let me just say one thing briefly, and then we'll, be, we'll, we'll, we'll end. In the Hellenistic world, the Greek world, Aristotle's understanding of the slave was ad, as an animate article of property, which probably reflects the opinion of most. In Roman times, this understanding of the slave as a, quote, thing continues at least in legal texts. And Paul is going to tell us here as we get going in this letter, for this is perhaps why Onesimus was parted with you, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, in no way a thing, no way just an object, but much more as a beloved brother. Especially to me, he's my brother, but now much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. The Bible makes it clear that slavery is a scourge, 
Man-stealing is forbidden and wrong, Old Testament and New. And what is happening in Philemon is a subversive work that would subvert slavery and point to the reality that is found in the image of God. We're going to get there here in the weeks to come. One more thing. Jubilee, we should be able to have good, robust political discussions in this next year. I hope we do. They're important. Politics is certainly not the main thing, but discussing issues, seeking to understand, thinking well are important. As we do, we must be careful to put off the way that is modeled for us, around us, and put on the way of Christ. Jubilee, this message is one I preach to myself. Preach this as one standing in great need of help. And I love the way uh, we ended last week at the end of Hebrews. Great encouragement for us. This is not a call to muster all this up in our own ability. No, friends, this is a call to respond to his ability. To ask him to bear the fruit of his spirit in our lives So Hebrews 13 says this, Now may the God of peace, who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, may this God equip you and I with everything good that we may do his will. That he would be working in us that which is pleasing in his sight. Through Jesus Christ, who is the King, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. There's a way of closing this morning. This feels like a, a text that calls us to pray. And so I want to invite you to turn to a couple folks right around you and say, God, would you help us to speak in this way, to put on this new kingdom operating way of speaking? And we're just going to do it for two minutes, but let's go hard and ask God to do this for us. Huddle up two minutes. Let's ask God to do this thing we've heard from his word. And then our friend Pastor Lou will come and close us. So find some people around you.